and gentlemen, welcome back to yet another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. <laughs> and today we're joined by Jessica Maxwell. Jessica. Dr. Jessica Mas- Maxwell, even. Yes, yes. As of 2017. Welcome. It's new to me, too. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to be on uh, talking about some of my research. We're super excited to have you. Um, why don't you go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself? Who are you? What lab are you in? Where are you working? That kind of stuff. Perfect. Yeah. So I'm currently right now a postdoctoral fellow at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and so I've been here for about over a year. Um, and before that, I did grad school um, at the University of Toronto. And so my work is in social psychology. So I look at the sort of the intersection between relationships and sexuality from a social psychological perspective. Yeah. So what are a couple of the things that you are going to try and teach us and teach our viewers today? What are we going to be talking about specifically when it comes to relationships and sex? So why not? I'll try to keep it focused on kind of maybe (laughs) um, three cool findings, I guess, or three Mm -hmm. things I'm looking at right now. Um, One is how... um, sex after conflict might affect your relationship. So kind of more colloquially known as makeup sex. So I think we should talk about makeup sex. Um, I think we should talk about um, sexual desire over a relationship, because I think that's something that everyone's really curious to learn about. And then I think maybe at the end, I can wrap it up by talking about some new work I'm starting about how you feel about sex with your partner at a really automatic or implicit gut level. Amazing. Okay, so... There's been zero conflict today between us, so I can't really like do a good segue into this makeup sex component. Yes, yeah. But um, <laughs> everything's good. Conflict. There's been no conflict. <laughs> no need to start a conflict here. <laughs> um, but why? What? What is? What is makeup sex? What is? How do you conceptualize makeup sex as a researcher? Uh, what got you interested in this? Right. I'm, I'm just interested from a like what spurred this idea? Right. So yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that makeup sex is something that we've always like sort of as a lay culture, I think we talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. So when I present on this work, I often show a Seinfeld clip where Jerry Seinfeld is saying like, there's pretty much no other sex better than makeup sex unless you're like in prison and have a conjugal <laughs> visit. Like makeup sex is like, yeah, he does a good, I should do the voice that I'm gonna <laughs> make your listeners <laughs> bear through that. But uh, his kind of overall message is that makeup sex is, sex is really passionate. And if, you know, when I, when I Google trying to get pictures for talks like if you Google makeup sex there are these like articles from you know Cosmo and what have you just talking about how makeup sex is really hot and can benefit your relationship and so I really wanted to know well is this actually the case or is this just one of those another yet another one of those sort of like pop culture myths mm-hmm. um, and what I've always found kind of interesting and surprising is that um, the research on how sex and mood interact is fairly new um, so there's been a couple studies coming out in the past few years, but we really don't know all that much about how sex and mood kind of intertwine. Um, and so, so yeah, I was fortunate in that um, in my postdoc, my advisors here had existing data um, where they asked couples each day about whether or not they had a conflict and whether or not they had sex. Um, and they did that every day for two weeks. So that was sort of the data set I started to test this question in. Um, so you make a really great point, though, and something I'll be upfront about, about how do I conceptualize makeup sex? Um, and so right now, um, because I sort of had this existing data set, it's more just does conflict happen on the same day as sex? Right. I don't have like a particular measure as in like as explicitly asking if they had makeup sex, yeah. but that's sort of what I'm hoping to do in the future. Because I like I, it's, you know, it's not a perfect, like I don't know the... I don't know, they might have had a conflict in the morning and had sex like two hours later, sure. like who knows. Yeah. Um, so it's makeup sex loosely defined, if you will. That, that makes sense though. <laughs> so one thing that I, I was hoping to ask Jessica is, uh, you talk about makeup sex and, and one of the ways that some people I think probably define it mm-hmm. is makeup sex is a method of actually, I don't want to say resolving the issue, but finally literally putting to bed the issue, if that, <laughs> if you don't mind me. Oh my gosh, that. can I steal that for a paper title? You, I love it. I haven't thought have of that, that yet. <laughs> okay, I'll give you one. credit for it. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting question. Like, are people doing it to kind of put the nail on that? Yeah, like kind of resolve the issue. Yeah. Um, and, and like and I, I say... Healthy? Oh, sorry. Go for it. Oh no, I was just gonna say. And is that healthy? Like, is that? And is it healthy? Can that be? Yeah. Can that be an effective strategy for overcoming an obstacle? And, and certainly not all of them, but you know, if but some yeah, of them upset that your partner left the dishes out. You know, you're like, okay, yeah. well. <laughs> 
I am seeing that it seems like mm -hmm. instead of wanting to have sex to like make things better, people seem to be having sex on a conflict day to avoid more negative outcomes. Um, so what I mean by that is, is instead of endorsing like, yeah, I want to do it to like feel love with my partner, they're more actually saying things like, oh, I'm having sex to like make mm -hmm. them not get more mad. So it's like to prevent more negative things and not so much to like have that positive affect. So. Um, to sort of, I guess, uh, spoil my, my main finding is actually that the sex itself of makeup sex, so having mm -hmm. sex on a conflict day, is rated as a less satisfying sexual experience um, relative to days without conflict. So what I think is happening there is perhaps this idea that people might not be having sex for like the best reasons, and it's sometimes like, oh, just to like, you know, make sure they don't get more angry or uh, things like that to prevent them from getting upset. So the sex itself isn't as high quality, which is really interesting. Um, but then your question also about like, can it work to resolve conflict? Um, speaking to that point, I do have some evidence that actually it's good for your relationship if you have sex on a conflict day. So we know, um, I'm sure everyone who's ever been in a relationship knows that conflict is so bad for your relationship, or it's, it's often experienced as negative in the moment and bad for your relationship. And so if you have sex on a <laughs> conflict day, that helps reduce some of that negative toll that conflict can play on your relationship. So we're seeing that like, okay, yeah, the sex itself might not be great, but we are seeing that it can sort of help you keep some level of relationship satisfaction even when you're fighting, which is interesting. Um, but what I want to study, and I'm glad you kind of brought that up, Kyle, is that like this idea of um, what if you sort of always use sex to, um, like what if you have sex to sort of stop a full-on conversation that you should be having, you know? So it's possible that if you, you know, let's say your partner always brings up how you never do the dishes, to use your example, and you always, instead of addressing that, you're like, oh, I'll just distract mm -hmm. them and let's just have sex. It's going to be great. Um, what I would predict with that is that over time, that's going to be, that's not going to be positive. So um, there's some relationship research that I think is relevant mm -hmm. here that talks about how a lot of the strategies we use for conflict, um, re like resolution, can be good in the moment, but actually bad over time. So doing things like, you know, deflecting or using humor, we like those in the moment because they make us feel less bad when we're fighting with our partner. But then what ultimately happens is those issues don't get resolved and they keep recurring in your relationship. So I think one direction that I want to go in the future is exactly what you kind of were asking is like, well, you know, can what happens if sex is your conflict resolution? Because I can see it maybe being good right in the moment, but then perhaps over time, it's it's not actually an effective way to to really resolve the problem, right? If right. you're not fully chatting it out. Yeah. 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 If you're just using this as a, as a tool for kind of pushing the problem forward to deal with another day and, you know, exactly. Like, oh, okay. Suddenly, suddenly there are a lot of dishes out and <laughs> yes, yes. And then there'll be a moment where sex will not solve the amount of dishes in the sink. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have this idea that maybe arousal is playing a part in this in a way that uh, you you can mis mm -hmm. misattribute uh, your arousal uh, and kind of just your you have a so in a conflict when you're fighting with your partner you're yelling you're you're angry you're mad at them uh, and your your body's really aroused right you're in a, you're fighting yeah. so uh, your body right your body needs to do something with all this energy and so maybe switching that over to sex makes sense because the body's already aroused and there's a lot of emotions attached to it so so that may cause that oh, that's interesting so I had I had originally thought before you had mentioned your your findings that that. I was kind of siding on the Seinfeld yeah. idea where uh, it, it would be better sex or it would be reported as better sex, but but the fact that you're adding mood into it would change their perceptions of how good it was. I right. Bet. Yeah. And I was like, I'm glad you brought up the misattribution of arousal because I actually had the exact same thinking of as you. And like when I was formulating my hypotheses, I had the exact same thought that I was like, well, it's sort of similar to those, you know, that if like people are familiar sometimes with the the classic bridge study where it's like if you're on the Capilano suspension bridge, you guys are in BC um, and you're approached by a hot woman, you think she's really hot, but it's really your anxiety that's, that you're misattributing. And so I think like that could be true. It seemed possible, like you were saying, Drake, that that could be true for makeup sex as well, that like your physiological arousal, you sort of um, either channel it through sex or you misattribute the sex like the sex is more passionate because it did have that arousal that you're still fired up from fighting, but you're attributing that mm -hmm. to passion. Um, but yeah, that didn't seem, I mean, what is, I think something a future direction as well is like the measures I have after the sexual experience is it's just like how satisfying was it? I don't necessarily have like how passionate was it or how, so it's, Right. Tough to know too, right? Because we could see, I mean, I don't see a gender, a sex or gender difference in terms of um, that finding. So both people rate sex on a conflict day as less satisfying. Um, 
but yeah, it's interesting because I was like, maybe people, maybe it is still true that it is like more arousing or something like that, but maybe it's the emotional part that's not as good. And that's what's it's, yeah, yeah. But I guess like to argue against myself, my thinking so far is that since it does seem to be good to your, for your relationship and not as good sex quality is that maybe it actually isn't as passionate and arousing, um, but it is still fulfilling an emotional component. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. So, I mean, the finding that you have is it's still a cool finding. Mm -hmm. It's its that individuals that are having sex when they're having conflict on a day uh, are doing better than those that aren't, exactly. right? And I, I mean, yeah. logically, it kind of makes sense, yeah. I guess, yeah. where it's like, hey, like we're having conflict, but we're still able to have sex and we're still be able to like address each other as a couple and kind of forego it maybe. But uh, you, the, the idea that you talked about is that you could be using it as misdirection or a way of right. avoiding those conflicts. Right. And that could, and that be, could a problem, be a problem. problem as well. Yeah. And one interesting finding I forgot to mention as well is I do see one um, sex difference. So I asked them, like, how good was the sex if you had it? And then I asked them how satisfied they were with their relationship. But I also asked them, even if they did or didn't have sex, we just asked them, how satisfied are you with your sex life in general? So what's interesting is that it seems like for the males, because I had I had newlywed couples here, um, the, the males, they like, um, if they had sex on a conflict day, they were really happy with their sex life. Um, but for females, even if they had sex on a conflict day, um, they weren't so happy. So like another way of, I guess, saying it in a more <laughs> sexy way is like for men, it seems like the sex trumps the conflict. But for women, the conflict mm -hmm. is trumping the sex in terms of their overall global feelings of sexual satisfaction. So I think it's kind of potentially interesting, something hopefully to explore again a little bit more in the future. But kind of interesting that for men, it's like it doesn't matter. Their global feelings of sexual satisfaction are the same if they have sex on a conflict day or if they have sex on a non-conflict day. So they're just pumped that they had sex. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of coincides with the Seinfeld yes, idea. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just a bunch of guys talking about how, how good, good it the is. How good the makeup sex is, yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. women are like, And the oh, girls are like, eh, not, so not really. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. So, I mean, that's something that there's a lot of potential. It seems like it's a new area yes, yeah. uh, that you can kind of explore and really find some really novel novel things in that area. It's really Yeah, cool. thank you. Yeah, I think so. I think really, I guess, like, if I had to sort of sum up one takeaway is that, like, my research so far is suggesting that like you shouldn't purposely go out of your way to fight so that you can have makeup <laughs> sex. Like don't fight so that you can do that. But it does yes. seem like if you are fighting, having sex can be good for your relationship, even if it's not maybe the most mind blowing experience of your life. Yeah. Right. And I think using it also, as we talked about, using it for the right purposes, exactly. right? Is, is it super important? Yeah, so I think if you yeah. use it to restore intimacy, that's going to be good. If you're using it as like a, let's just distract. They don't have that fight about the dishes again. That's not going to be good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's huge implications. So, so we, we usually separate this podcast is gonna be a little bit different because you got so many things that we're going to talk about. Okay. But we usually talk about the implications of the work that you're doing. And, and that's a great way to, to recap that it's basically uh, they can really impact your relationship. Right. There's a lot of things that are going on in a relationship. Sex is a huge part of that for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and coping and support is super important, too. So if you're not doing those things and you're avoiding it by having sex things aren't going to work out. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, they, won't. maybe they won't. And actually a good thing. To, I don't want to say yeah, for, sure. for sure. Me neither. Um, not with just one study. Um, they're, and I was going to say, they're for too, sure. Um, maybe going to work out. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent of the time. What is it? Yeah. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I interrupted. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. Um, I was just going to mention 60% of the time it works exactly, every time. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I was going to stress too with the implications, I kind of forgot to mention this too, is that um, there is a variety of conflicts. Like, so I think when we think of, you know, um, like I think that it's interesting that I'm finding these effects even when we're talking about more day-to-day -day conflicts. So the conflicts I was looking yeah. at with these newlywed couples, like some of them, I mean, they're hilarious to read. I could probably spend the whole podcast <laughs> just like telling you guys examples, but you know, it'll be little things like, oh, they like ordered our food before I was ready at the restaurant or like they went ahead to the mall without me when I wasn't ready. Like they're not, not all of them are like the serious conflicts but i think right. it's still important that we're seeing these effects sort of in the more day-to-day -day conflicts that that we might typically see in relationships yeah, yeah. like very mundane yeah. things to be upset exactly. about exactly like exactly huh. yeah fascinating yeah so yeah. <laughs> so really quickly jessica we talked uh or we've got some list of commonly used terms and definitions that we may or may not oh, encounter yeah. as we go on and go forward here perfect yeah um if i throw a couple at you can you just give me like a real quick yeah, for there. sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of these I'm just picking because they sound really cool and I want to say them on the yeah. podcast. Uh, okay. Let's go with sex growth. What is sex growth? 
Yes. Yeah. So sex growth refers to um, some of the work I did in my dissertation, which is the idea that believing sex takes work is good for your relationship. Okay. Cool. Uh, Sex destiny. Yeah. So sex destiny is kind of um, in some ways sort of an opposite idea. And it's this idea that um, you really need natural sexual chemistry in order to have a good sexual relationship. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Yep. That makes sense for me. Whenever I, I hear that term, I kind of thought I thought of it as like more of a pickup line. <laughs> <laughs> You're my sex destiny. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. It's a good one. Good to hear that yeah. I was wrong. Good to hear that I was wrong. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean feel free to use it. <laughs> Let me know how it works out. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not very well. <laughs> Okay. And I guess I should define sexual desire. So for my purposes here, mm-hmm. usually I'm talking about your sort of self-reported motivation to uh, engage in sex with your partner. So it's often measured with items like my desire for sex with my partner is strong. I have a strong sex drive. So you can kind of think of it. Um, it's a bit of a simplification, but we can talk about it like sex drive sort of. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, that's perfect. Yeah. So that's it. That's, that's actually interesting, Jessica, because I'm, 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 always interested in how people define things yes. especially in sex research because yes. there's so many things going on and and it can get kind of convoluted if you're not defining these things as effectively as okay, you yeah because i was gonna say like and i mean there's definitely a lot of i think we're gonna get some pushback about how we've measured sexual desire but we just use like a self-report uh scale of desire and it's um mostly just a mm-hmm. mix of some dyadic and solitary desire in there yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and so i mean as a dyadic coping researcher as well mm-hmm. uh Whenever Jessica says dyad, she means that we're basically just looking at couples. Right. So two people. Two people. Um, yeah. And so that's research that's really cool because you can see how to, a couple react to each other and you can measure both the individuals in the couple, not just one individual. Um, but uh, so talking about desire trajectory, yeah. I think that kind of leads us into your next t- area yes. of like, specialization. Is, and that's about basically how desire changes across the right, the, 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 the relationship. Right. right. Yeah. And I'm glad you just defined your that was a perfect segue as well that you just talked about dyadic because um, one of the main uh, the most major contribution of the, the project I'm going to talk about is that we have uh, both couple members throughout the first four years of their marriage. And we're looking at how changes in desire might also affect your romantic partner, right? Because for the most part in dyadic uh, traditional monogamous mm-hmm. couples, you're relying on your partner to get your sexual needs met oftentimes. So it's really important when one partner is declining in desire, how that might affect, um, you know, how affect, that might affect the other couple members since, yeah, you kind of need both people oh, to wow. want to just, you often need both people to desire sex to, to have it happen. So, um, mm-hmm. so this data, I have so many yeah, questions. I was like, <laughs> there's so much to this talk awesome. about. Um, and so this data, uh, just to preface to his data, um, I didn't personally collect it. I was fortunate that my postdoc advisor had this data set. So again, it's newlywed heterosexual couples. So that's a limitation and something to keep in mind. Um, but it was a quite diverse sample in terms of ethnicity, which is exciting. And so they were measured, um, like seven times throughout the first four years of their marriage. And we actually have two different samples. So we like show the same pattern in two different samples of newlyweds and then collapse them together as well, um, just to kind of try to replicate it. Um, And so the main thing we looked at was just like the simple question, because a lot has been looked at in terms of cross-sectional, so I don't know if we have to define cross-sectional, but a lot has been done um, just like asking people at one time point, like how long have you been in your relationship and what's your sexual desire for your partner, Um, which is very valuable and important. And uh, those studies have started to give hints that desire does decline um, the longer you're in a relationship. Um, But what's different with our study is we're actually tracking the same people over time. So we're looking at sort of that within change. So, you know, even if I'm some someone who might start really, really high in desire, if I start to drop um, and I'm lower than my own baseline, that might affect my partner. Um, so I guess I can get right into the, to the main finding. Um, I will note, because I'm going to forget to say this, <laughs> there is a decent amount of variability. Um, so not everyone follows the fa- f- pattern I'm going to I'm going to um, describe, and I think we can talk about maybe at the end some ways to to change your patterns. But the general pattern we do see is that women's sexual desire is declining. So there's a significant negative downward slope. So like their their desire is just sort of steadily decreasing over the first four years of marriage, um, whereas men's sexual desire is remaining relatively constant. Mm. Um, so if you can kind of think of it like, okay, well, if men's desire is staying about like a flat line and women's is starting to drop, that also means that on average for most couples, the gap in their desire is getting bigger as well. Um, 
And so one of the important things that we showed, because I was like, oh, well, that might, might not be the worst thing in the world because people might just sort of like adapt to that, right? They might just be like, this is our new normal. This is okay. Um, but unfortunately, we are showing that when wives' sexual desire is dropping, that is having a negative effect on both couple members' marital satisfaction. So this is, gets back okay. to the intertwined nature of sex and relationships. So um, when the wife's sexual desire is declining, both the husband and the wife are reporting that they're less satisfied with their marriage. Um, and so that can have a lot of potential implications, potential you know problems down the line. Um, and we're only looking at the first four years of marriage, right? So it could even potentially be getting worse as, as they're getting older and, and further into the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Jessica, I have a question for you. I have a couple questions yeah. for you. That's, all, that's really cool research. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, uh, I'll start with the first one and then the second one's kind of more about the findings and the results okay, gotcha. between relationship satisfaction and uh, sexual desire. Right. But so, so when you're looking at sexual desire, yes. you're seeing that it's going down for females and kind of staying average for men. Yeah. But what is the sat sexual satisfaction at that point? Do you, yeah, do you know what they're reporting on how satisfied that's are. a great question and is it, is there, there a is a difference yeah so we don't see gender differences in terms of sexual i've never actually plotted it all together so um this data set has been used to show that sexual satisfaction does tend to decline also over the first four years of marriage um but that finding is not does not differ between men and women. So mm. it seems like everyone's okay. sexual satisfaction is going down a little bit, um, but the the desire thing seems to be particularly women that it's happening to. Um, right. Yeah, but that's a great question, sort of how sexual satisfaction plays plays into all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so for these newly, you got newlyweds in this yeah. study, right? So they're just, so you are essentially, the cool thing about this, this study and this four year longitudinal study that you're doing, that you have uh, is, that you basically have the honeymoon phase nested within this data exactly, where, yeah. where you can actually look at this honeymoon, mm -hmm. like this, I don't want to call it a myth because I don't, it's yeah. clear, it's clear that there's something going on because the sexual desire is dropping within the, these, right. these people. So right. you do see that effect. Um, and so that's really cool. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. You, if you have something to say about that, you yeah, really I was gonna to say it reminds that, yeah. me like I feel like you're reading my mind because I was like I definitely have when I'm talking about this. I always have a picture of like the honeymoon phase and this idea that we have that newlyweds are having like really passionate uh, sex. <laughs> At least my data so far isn't showing that. Um, I do also have this is like slightly tangential, but uh, hopefully related. <laughs> hopefully you guys think that, or you can cut it. Um, I have data from engaged couples where I ask them, "What do you think is going to happen to your sex life when you're married?" And they think that it's going to get better when they're married. So they are on board with this idea that like the honeymoon phase is a real thing. They're like, "Yeah, when we get married, like our sex life is going to be better. We're going to have sex like 11 times a month." And I'm like, "Okay, what?" <laughs> like, check check yourself. But um, so I think that there is something to this idea that like we all have this expectation that newlyweds are having really like hot sex but at least um at least like the the desire stuff is showing that it's starting to decline i mean i will say though like they are newlyweds they are quite high they're starting from a really high point so it's not like they're experiencing like really really low desire you know it's just um but they are starting to drop um but one thing that i think is interesting is i almost feel like we possibly have caught, caught people even after their true honeymoon phase. Um, so yeah. there's one study that I really like that uh, came out a couple of years ago showing that sexual satisfaction in relationships tends to decline after one year of dating. And I was like, that was much earlier than I ever thought, like not one year into marriage, one year into dating. So it's possible that even some of these newlywed couples have already sort of had some of their like true honeymoon passion peak. Um, and that might be why we're even seeing the, the drops, even though they just got married. Yeah. Can I propose a hypothesis? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, give me ideas. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I actually, I was thinking the exact same. I think we're on the same page today. Yes. I don't know something yeah. about what we're, <laughs> we're just reading each other's yes. minds. But um, with this, I find it's interesting. Maybe this is possible. The honeymoon phase may have came from a time or a, in a historical context yeah. where sex wasn't something that occurred or people didn't live together or mm -hmm. have sex with each other before marriage as, as often. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't necessarily the norm. Whereas today, it seems that the majority of people are either engaging in sex while they're dating an individual and not waiting for marriage. Yeah. So maybe that honeymoon phase is kind of delayed because of the sex or it's it's yes. actually this cat, it's catalog. It's the right. opposite. So it's, it's not delayed anymore. It's, it's happening earlier. And then so engagement and, and marriage. I was about to say divorce. <laughs> well, um, foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, engagement and marriage are no longer the like 
it doesn't come with the expectation that okay now we're gonna have a good sex life it's like our sex life has already been determined or we've already been going that direction yeah and i imagine people are also thought that think that i've thought that as well yeah no i definitely think well you'd be surprised like i think you're bang on and that's something that i actually have to check because i don't know if we have enough i'm not 100 percent sure if we have those measures in enough couples but i think an easy way to start to test that is just to even check by moderations of like did they have sex before marriage? Like, how long have they been having sex? How long have they been together before they get married? Because I think you're completely right that, like, I think the the traditional honeymoon idea probably did come from when you did wait. Now, like, our society's, like, changed so much that I think you're totally right that that, that honeymoon phase might be pushed, you know, so much earlier and that um, we're capturing something quite different in the newlywed stage now than we would have in the past, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you could you could even have it consider it like a pseudo honeymoon phase if you were to like say move in with a partner. Yes, like the, yes. the common loss idea, right? Like yes. that could be like, okay, this is a big deal. We're now living together, and then you have your little mini honeymoon phase, and then and then engagement and marriage are just kind of an extension of okay, like, we're continuing. Drake, to, I feel like man. you have like all my ideas because I was gonna say <laughs> 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 uh, because uh, I'm glad you brought that up, and that's something I'm totally very excited to look at. I have data from people right before they move in with their romantic partner, mm-hmm. and I ask them like. What do you think is going to happen to your sex life? And then I check when they actually did move in with their partner. So I like have the data to test exactly what you're saying. I just haven't looked oh at it yet. <laughs> You'll, you guys oh, will have to have me back, back on yeah. so I can like answer all of Drake's like questions that are all really good. Yeah. So here's a question I have for you. In the first four years yeah. of marriage, it wouldn't be uncommon for a couple to perhaps have a child. Bingo. So how, do you, how did you account for that in your data? Yeah, so that's a great point. And I was debating if I should even mention that at the beginning. So our paper is actually focused a lot on exactly your question. So what we find is that the birth of a child is exacerbating the declines for women, and it's not having an effect on men. Um, So another way of sort of framing this is that, yeah, for men, whether they become fathers or not, their desire is staying constant. Uh, But for the women who become mothers, their desire is declining even more so. Um, But even the women who aren't having a child, they're still declining. So it's like all women are declining, but you're just declining a lot more if you have a child. Um, And we've sort of tried to get at why this might be the case. We don't have like, you know, a complete extensive set of measures, but um, we've done things like show that that desire decline in moms is true, even when you control for things like stress and depression. Um, so we're kind of trying to really probe, like, and, and hopefully going to get to follow this up to try to figure out what it is about becoming a mother that, um, like the birth of a new child. I mean, there's so much great research about the postpartum postpartum period and how the, the relationship and the sex life change after that. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I think it's, there's lots of kind of things going on. I think it's really hard to unpack why it's happening. Um, but I think it's really interesting and really, really kind of, um, something that, that is going to you know, not only is having the baby stressing you out, it's also potentially related to these changes in desire, which are also affecting your marriage. Um, but we have to make sure if I don't do it now, um, make sure that at some point I come back to like how you can buffer against some of those declines in desire. Cause there's some great work and I don't want to like, I, I hate leaving people with this message. Like, you know, yeah, no, that, <laughs> yeah. we always like to leave the first part. Yeah, with the that, okay, good, that was actually going to be my next question, but we can hold on to that and maybe Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yes. We'll, we'll yeah. save it for a few minutes. Um, okay. Okay. Perfect. My 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 one question. I, oh, sorry, Kyle. I have a question on just specifically marital satisfaction right. and right. Uh, sexual desire. Yeah. So you found that uh, sexual desire is declining, and then marital satisfaction is also declining with that. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so how how do you separate those two? Or kind of why are you? Uh, right hypothesizing that it's relationship satisfaction that's going down because of sexual desire or if it's kind of together or is it together where relationship satisfaction is getting worse so then your sexual desire is declining as well right because of that yes because i think there's reason i mean you're you're definitely like smart to be asking that because there is some some indications that the link between sex and relationship satisfaction might be bi-directional um, there's a lot of findings mm-hmm. that sex leads to relationship satisfaction but there's some suggestion that it could be the opposite um the reason uh i'm for once able to give a bit of a more definitive answer because we did test the opposite direction so we test whether changes in marital satisfaction were predicting changes in sexual desire and we did not find that to be the case um so statistically okay. we found um evidence for our hypothesized causal direction that it's like the change in sexual desire that's really predicting the changes in marital satisfaction and not that changes in your marriage are predicting the changes in de- desire 
Um, oh, yeah, perfect. yeah, and we're able to do that. Um, again, I'm sort of fortunate to be able to look at this data where um, they're, they're measured, um, because they're measured seven time points, we can, we can look at like, you know, my sexual desire now and then predict my marital satisfaction six months later uh, and vice versa yep. to really try to isolate the the direction. So um, so far, we're finding support that desires, you know, leading to the to the changes in marital satisfaction. But I also think there is some reason to believe. I mean, you can totally imagine that if you're in a really bad relationship, you're going to experience not a ton of sexual desire either. So I do think that the other direction is probably happening too. Just doesn't seem to be as strong in in our data. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, so it's always been something that I've I've been curious whenever talking about sex research and relationship yeah. research you're always wondering what is what is the the chicken or the egg <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's the chicken yeah. or the egg more or less yeah it's just like is it sex that's causing your relationship to be yeah. bad like the lack of sex or the, the the quality of the sex that's impacting how you see your relationship or is your relationship going poorly and then sex is de like deteriorating at the same time so it's interesting that you guys can tap into that yeah. uh, and, uh, and address it statistically yeah which uh, is awesome yeah because i think it's definitely yeah. and i think it's um something again that i'm kind of like on the horizon to try to look at a little bit more because i think that we haven't done as good of a job as a field as we could have to try to really isolate the, the directionality and i think like there's lots of inconsistent findings about if changes in your relationship do predict changes in your sex life. So I think really doing these types of studies where we get multiple time points and try to follow the same people over time um, can really help to start to get at that to, to really try to give us a better answer. Cause yeah, I think there's lots of open questions with it right now. Hmm. Definitely. So one thing that's sort of puzzling in the literature right now is um, there's a lot of research about how sex is good. So there's fun findings like, um, you know, if you have sex today, even your work performance will be better tomorrow and your mood will be better. And if you have... Wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. <laughs> I shouldn't have given you... No. <laughs> yeah. Jake's just going to want to talk about those findings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just to add to that, the, the whole concept of like, don't have sex before game day. Oh, yeah. Are you telling me that's all sham right now <laughs> i mean that's like you're gonna perform question. better i think it i mean i think it was like more traditional office workplace so yeah i can't speak to well you can day. treat it like it's a game day if you want I guess. exactly I anyway sorry yeah, every day is game day you can every day, day, is. day is game day <laughs> yeah oh my goodness coach isn't gonna like to hear that but anyway uh, sorry, continue before I drop. Yes, um, no, but I think, yeah, so, so yeah, we know it can help work performance, maybe game day performance. I'm not going to speak to that. Um, <laughs> boost your mood. Uh, there's even findings. Uh, Amy Muse, who you guys should have on your podcast sometime. She has cool research showing that, Absolutely. like, the boost in happiness you gain if you went from having sex once a week to once a month is the same boost in happiness you'd get if you earned $50,000 more a year. So, like, that's pretty cool. That's, like, my salary. Wow. That's more than my salary. So, that's a huge effect. Yeah, yeah, so, like, there's big effects so like that's really great and you know i always like mention all these great findings about how sex matters for our relationship and life satisfaction um when i'm giving talks but then what's really kind of paradoxical is that sexual frequency is not actually reliably associated with relationship satisfaction so it's not the case that the couples who are having the most sex say that they're the most satisfied in a relationship um, and that is sort of a little bit of a puzzle. And that's where um, my work on um, implicit sexual associations is going to come in. And um, so uh, this has been some work that my, my lab here at FSU has been doing um, even before I got here. So one of my favorite findings is that um, my friend Lindsay Hicks has research showing that how frequently couples have sex is not associated with like how satisfied they say they are with their relationship, but it is related to how satisfied you are with your partner at a more implicit or automatic gut level. Um, and just to give people a sense of what that is, um, she measures this often using things like, you'll see a picture of your partner's face flash up on a screen really quickly, and then there'll be words like wonderful or excellent, and you have to just like identify those words as positive words as quickly as you can. And there's also negative words also. So, um, so just sort of imagine if you're in this experiment, you're seeing your partner's face, then you're seeing these adjectives, and you have to say if the adjectives are good or bad. And the whole idea behind this is that if your partner is someone who you um, really like, and it automatically sort of activates all these positive feelings. If I see my partner's face and then a word like excellent, I should be much quicker to identify the word excellent because he's sort of primed me with something positive. Um, you could think the opposite, like if it was like a picture of like a, I don't know, like with something negative, I'm trying to think of like 
I don't know if a picture, a yeah, snake. a snake, exactly. A picture of a snake and then a negative word, I should be really quick to answer that. Um, so that's sort of a way to kind of capture implicit partner attitudes is what we call it. So um, when I'm talking about automatic attitudes, I'm talking about sort of a reaction time measure that you can't really consciously control as much. So it's um, a lot more valid than just asking people, how happy are you with your partner? Because it's harder to fake, right? Um, because it's like these millisecond reaction times. Um, and we use like lots of different trials so that it's not just you know one photo driven by yeah. exactly photo, yeah, word, yeah or one word or things like that um so really yeah That's it's really kind of interesting and i think if um, any of your listeners are familiar it's sort of similar to like the the implicit association task that you might have taken a, a, a quiz that um reveals your like underlying bias or whatever um it's like a similar premise just sort of this um, automatic reactions to your partner. And so she's shown that like how frequently you have sex is related to a lot more positive automatic associations towards your partner, but not necessarily those self-reported feelings about your marriage. Hmm. Um, and then what she did, um, and then, I, yeah, sorry, you guys might have questions, but one thing that she, she showed yep. then is it's like, okay, well, well, maybe there's people like who, like for whom do your automatic feelings align with your um, self-reported feelings. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do in my research as well is figure out um, how sex can influence your automatic feelings, but also your, your self-reported feelings. Um, and here, what we think is really important is the role of motivations or beliefs. So um, in, in more data they have, they show that um, if you have, let's say you have um, frequent orgasms. I'm, am I allowed to talk? Okay. I don't know yeah. how explicit yeah. your, your podcast is, you but if you have more frequent orgasms. as explicit as you need to be. <laughs> as we want to be. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so Jocelyn's episode, we were talking about fuck buddies. Okay, perfect. Benefits, okay. All that stuff. So uh, orgasm is completely, completely. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, I know I'm going to be like much, <laughs> I, much I think more... it's better that we talk about it than avoid <laughs> orgasm. That's true. That's true. important, this is important. To talk more broadly about things. And, yeah. uh, and I was going to say, I could guarantee I'm probably more G-rated than Joss's podcast probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so she found that if you're having more frequent orgasms from penile vaginal intercourse, um, you have more positive automatic feelings about your partner. And that is related to you saying you feel better about your relationship. As long as you also report that penile vaginal intercourse is important for relationships. So it's all about if you think the experience is important for your relationship. So if you think they also have data that like, if you think oral sex is important, well then now it's your oral sex experience that's relating to your explicit evaluations. So it's sort of this idea that like sex is making us feel good at a positive level, at an automatic level, but that might not always relate to how you feel, how you say you feel, um, depending on your desires and beliefs about sex and relationships, which I think is really, really interesting. Hmm. That's really cool. I have a, I have a question yeah, for you, for sure, on, yeah. on that. So with that data, is it strictly on one individual or do you have couples as well within that yeah, data? Because I'm thinking... Sorry, oh, no, yeah, go, go for your hypothesis, yeah. She, does, does she have, she she does has have couple couples, data? Yeah, I'm not sure if she's actually okay. like done too much with the couple's data, but yeah, there is couples in that data set for sure, yeah. yeah. I'm interested because that's a really cool finding that if you think of penile vaginal sex as being important for yeah. your relationship, uh, then the more you have, the better, right? right? right. Uh, the, the more your implicit, sorry, what's the, what's uh, the implicit? Yeah, automatic partner attitudes, I guess. Yeah. Automatic, automatic partner attitudes. So it's just the, the idea that like you're associating positivity with your partner is affected by how much, um, how much you have sex the way that you think it is important to your relationship. But right. say I would want to, uh, say I really, I think I value penile vaginal sex. I think it's important for my relationship, right. but my partner doesn't. Right, right. And we have, and, and I rep we report having more penile vaginal right. sex, but my partner's not feeling that way. Does yeah. that do the opposite effect for your partner yeah, or is it actually going to? So what I would predict from like their findings and from like the model that I've sort of proposed is that let's say you're having a lot of, um, like let's say your partner, you're having a lot of penile vaginal intercourse, but you don't think it's important for your relationship. I think what happens, what we would see, my prediction would be that um, they would still have a positive automatic partner attitude. Like I think sex is still gonna be leading to positive things at that automatic gut level, but it might not yeah. then, I think where we'd see the difference is on your self-reported marital feelings. So it's like, I feel okay. like the beliefs are coming in at that last stage between where your automatic feelings are related to your self-reported feelings. So someone who doesn't think PVI is important, they still might feel good about their partner at that automatic level, but they're not letting that affect their 
global evaluation. So maybe when they're making their global, because like when we ask people about their marital satisfaction, it's like these really big, broad questions, like how satisfied, you know, how happy are you with your marriage yeah. and things like that. So I think if you're someone who's not thinking that PVI is important, you're drawing on other things when you're rating that question. You know, you're probably like, oh, well, of course. they do the dishes for me to bring it back to that example. Um, yeah. But I think if you're someone then who, who does think it's important, then you start to draw upon those. Um, but I think just at least from my, um, the model I'm proposing and just like from other literature, I think it's like, I think most sex, if it's decent quality and if it's with like a good partner, someone you trust, you're gonna, it's gonna be a positive experience that probably affects you positively at the automatic level. But I think there are cases mm -hmm. where you're gonna either let that really affect your relationship satisfaction or not, depending on your beliefs. Um, yeah, that's, su that's super cool. I, I, I've never actually heard of that area where you're thinking with those automatic yeah. thoughts uh, when it comes to sexuality yeah. and, and, or sex. Yes. And yeah. that's really cool because it's talking about like how the relationship functions from this implicit, like what you would consider to not really have too much control over. Right. Exactly. And then that can lead to other things. That's yeah. Really cool. And there's just some new. So, yeah, it's definitely a new area. Like there's it's. Uh, very, very new in terms of looking at it in terms of sex. And it's still quite new in terms of looking at it in relationship satisfaction. And there was just a study too recently showing it's like the same kind of thing with like conflicts, I believe. I'd have to check the study up again, but it's like this, it's all about how like our, our automatic attitudes are actually quite predictive and sometimes more predictive of things down the line than our explicit self-report. So even in newlywed studies, how you feel at the beginning of your marriage automatically is a better predictor of your satisfaction four years later than those more um, self-reported things. So like we are starting to get some evidence that it's um, hopefully a valuable thing to, to keep studying, right? So um, I think it's kind of interesting. And I think um, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at it uh, implicit um, things when we think about sex, because I think of all the things, I mean, we know that sex is something that makes people feel vulnerable. Um, people don't always like to like admit there's lots of taboos about sex and different cultural beliefs, religious beliefs. So I think like, I think it's really important to start to tap into things that are more uh, automatic instead of all of these cultural beliefs that we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fantastic. Let's, I want to know, I want to know, okay. Yeah. Desires waning in a relationship, <laughs> sexual desires waning. What can we do to fix right. that? Yes. Yeah. Good question. Because the good news is there is a lot of research saying that there is a lot you can do. So that's good. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start with uh, some of my own work and then go to other people's work. So um, earlier you had me define sexual growth beliefs. And this is the idea that sex takes work and kind of thinking that you really need to put time and effort into your relationship. And so I have data that shows that that can really help couples stay satisfied. So even if you just had a baby within the past year, um, I show that people who have those beliefs um, that you need to work on sex, both couple members are happier with their sexual relationship. So I think that's kind of the key. One of the key pieces is just remember that sex, you know, I think one of the reasons I like that desire finding, it sounds pessimistic at first. I'm saying women decline in desire over time, but it doesn't have to be the case. And I think knowing that that is a normative pattern can be really valuable because it can help you realize, okay, well, it's normal that we might experience some decline. So it's normal that we might have to put in a little bit more effort or a little bit more work to to make our sex life satisfying. So I think sexual growth beliefs are, are one of the things. And then there's also evidence, again, um, some of this comes from even from the t specifically even samples of um, couples who just gave birth um, in the transition to parenthood. But there's also work that uh, being willing to meet your partner's needs can really, really help. So there's uh, work on, it's called sexual communal strength, or you can think of it as like sexual responsiveness or just sort of being willing to meet your partner's needs. Having that can help both couple members in that difficult time after the transition to parenthood. So I think that's also really related to the idea of thinking sex takes work. It's like, okay, so I need to believe that we might need to work on a relationship. And now I'm saying I'm willing to accommodate my partner's sexual wishes. So, you know, maybe being willing to try something new if they want to, or even being willing to not have sex that day if they are, don't want to, um, that can be really valuable. Um, so I think it's like definitely not doomed. I think beliefs about sex are, are definitely important. And then at a more, I guess, less cognitive level, more practical level, um, there's some recent evidence. Um, again, this is coming from Amy Muse's work on um, self-expansion and how that can be really important for desire. And Art Aaron also has work on this. Um, 
So she has some evidence just showing that just trying something new with your partner can really, really help um, your sexual desire. And it doesn't have to be something new in the bedroom. It just has to be something. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I feel like when I say try something new, now everyone's primed to think of like some crazy, like 50 shades <laughs> thing. Uh, it doesn't have to be that. We're doing what? It could be if you yeah. want. Everybody, yeah. every, people are canceling their sex swing orders on Amazon yeah. as you speak. Yes, yeah. I mean, go for the, yeah, go for the sex swing, go for a normal swing, uh, yeah. you know, go swing dancing, any of that like, can work. Um, <laughs> anything that's just pushing you out of your comfort zone can help with desire so she has some great examples like even just things like trying a new recipe in the kitchen like anything that's going to help you see your partner in a new light that can really help keep mm-hmm. those feelings of passion and desire alive so i think those are all encouraging because they're not like again you don't you don't have to order a sex swing you don't have to do all that like you just have to kind of believe that you need to work on things and be willing to put in some effort um and just trying to keep your relationship passionate, you know, and, and learning new things about your partner as you go. So you're telling me there's more than, uh, more than one way to spice up your love life in the kitchen. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Good. Man, I'm on fire today. <laughs> Very cool. I know. I was like, you need to write my paper titles. I love them all. They're great. <laughs> I, maybe that's what I should do. This whole the kitchen can spice your sex life up. Good, maybe well maybe nice. if uh, maybe if this whole PhD thing doesn't work out, I'll go into <laughs> go into essay title writing or article title yes, writing. Yes. Yes. Article yeah. title writing yeah. for sure. Freelance my work. Anyways. Awesome. That's that's really cool though. It's I'm glad that we got to got to talk about that because I find that when we're talking about findings, uh, if they're findings that aren't like inherently good, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we can often get stuck on that, and then people don't really get, get the positives out of that. Right, right? There's a lot right. of things that the reason why you do the research on sexual desire mm-hmm. and um, sexual satisfaction and marital satisfaction is not to point out what everybody's doing sh- like really poorly at. Right. It's the goal, I imagine, is to say, okay, well, if you're doing poorly, these are things that can can happen or exactly or can work on to fix exactly that, right? yeah so that's not... perfect that's exactly yeah that sums it up because i think people kind of think that it's a depressing message but exactly i'm like the only reason i'm studying sexual desire trajectories is to know how we can intervene to help them and i think one of the things too is just to i like to know what is a normal like a you know a, t- a typical trend so that we can reassure people that it's normal right because as someone who studies sex yeah. even you know people will talk to me about their, their problems and I think one of the things that often comes out is me just reassuring them oh that's not a problem that's like normal that's that's what every you know I think we all think that everyone's yeah. having more sex than they are they're having hotter sex than they really are and so just knowing that like you know this this, this trend might be typical and it's nothing about you and your relationship and you can kind of just know that it's gonna have ups and downs I think that can be really valuable and ho- hopefully I hope ultimately help people feel a bit more comfortable and not freak out that their relationship is in trouble like you're saying yeah because it's it's just part of part of a relationship absolutely perfect awesome okay great thanks Jessica that was amazing that was a really good first half of the show we're gonna head into our brain break right now and do a little rapid fire questions for our lovely guests so awesome. uh, we'll see you guys on the other side hope you enjoy the rapid fire yeah that sounds works. good doesn't have to be perfect just something in there. Okay. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's saying it's not perfect? <laughs> I thought it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do this to him. Okay. His um, head's going to be too thank big. You, Jess. That's all I need. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> all right. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to our brain break. Uh, Jessica, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So uh, the deal here is we'll ask you a question. You just give us off the top of your head uh, first answer that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Favorite movie? Uh, oh, God. Okay. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh. I don't yeah. know what movie that is. I'm... I know. It's like, it's a okay. weird, that's what yeah. I was going to say. People don't know it. My second favorite is Dirty Dancing. Okay. But I recommend Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's a mockumentary about a small town beauty pageant in Minnesota. And it's got like Kirsten Dunn's Christy Alley. It's hilarious. It's weird, but it's great. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, how many letters are there in the word Tallahassee? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is like a spelling bee. T-A-L-L-A-H-A-S-S-E-E. I think 11. <laughs> sure. I'll- Simple answer. Yeah. Simple answer, Jessica. Yeah. Too many. Too, too many. Too many. Too right many. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I'm always like, is it double S, double E? Yeah. I probably still spell it wrong to this day. <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite holiday? Uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I'm... Canadian. Th- Canadian Thanksgiving. Okay, I was just about I'm to say. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, are you uh, turkey or the sides? You get to pick. You get either the turkey or all. Oh, the I- I'm sides. sides. All the sides. Okay. Yeah. Side. What is the best side? 
I want to say pumpkin pie, but I feel like that's cheating because that's dessert. But uh, I'll say pumpkin pie, but if, a, if you mean a real side, I'd say like sweet potatoes. It's Thanksgiving. Nobody judges Ooh, what you nice. eat for <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I, I go heavy on the pumpkin pie and dinner rolls. and like, who cares about the turkey? <laughs> and now that you're in the States, you kind of get to double down on two Thanksgivings, Yeah, right? yeah. So. It's a two Thanksgiving. I was home for, uh, I was at a sex conference, uh, the Canadian Sex Research Forum. I was there around Canadian Thanksgiving, so I got to do that. And now I'm uh, going to be here for American Thanksgiving. So double, double the, Amazing. double the sides. Yeah. <laughs> Smart, smart play. Yeah. Um, Drake, do you have one? Do I have one? Uh, how about every favorite mythical creature? I like uh, the Loch Ness monster. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Classic. 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 Easy. Yeah, yeah. Easy. As somebody from BC, I'm partial to the Ogopogo. Well, you know what? I was just trying to think of that name. That's the one in Kelowna, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like Okanagan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember uh, when we were there at a conference. I think Drake was at that conference, the one in Kelowna. Were you at the Kelowna one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and yeah. there was that giant thing. That seems pretty cool. I like that one, too. I want to change my mm. answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You don't get the choice. It's rapid yeah, fire, rapid Jessica. Fire. There's yeah. no, no second. No, no <laughs> All right. Uh, Apple or Android? Apple. Apple. Uh, favorite band Fair or enough. music or artist embarrassingly i'm gonna go with taylor swift half ironic half not taylor swift and drake the rapper not <laughs> not, not this drake. Okay. drake not this drake to clear <laughs> not a huge fan of not me. a huge fan no, i'm just kidding <laughs> okay yeah. uh american football or canadian awesome. football Canadian football. Oh, CFL. Really? Oh, yeah. Really? Bold nice. move to pick CFL. Yeah. My brother used to play like football in college. So okay. that's, yeah. Cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cucumber or pickle? Cucumber. Cucumber. Okay. Oh. Bold, choice. bold choice. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> Disagree wholeheartedly. Chip flavor. But anyway. <laughs> Ooh, chip. Oh, that's oh one, favorite yeah. chip fav- flavor. Or I favorite like chip. the. Oh, favorite chip in you general? Choose. I like barbecue pop chips. Oh. Yeah, weird, but nice. try them. Yeah. Don't knock them before you try them. Um, they feel healthier because they're like <laughs> pop chips, but yeah. <laughs> I guess there's no ketchup chip down in Florida. No, no, sadly. Yeah, I'm deprived of ketchup chips, but there's plenty of other <laughs> junk food here for sure. Oh, I imagine so. I imagine so. All right. Well, I think with that, we can wrap up some rapid fire questions. Thanks, Jess, for playing along. Sounds Been good. Fun. No problem, of course. Yeah. Putting up with us. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, no problem. So why don't we, why don't we dive into the uh, second half of uh, the show here? Perfect. So okay. we'll get into some mis- misconceptions, maybe a fact or two, and then we'll, we'll wrap it sure. up. Sure. Hi, welcome back. I'm Dr. Jessica Maxwell, and this is uh, my episode of Brain Buzz. And here are the hosts, Kyle and Drake. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Jessica. Appreciate it. So, yeah, let's dive into it. I feel like I've, like, revealed a lot of the main misconceptions that I've seen, um, but I'll sort of maybe just, yeah, like, recap really them, if that makes sense. Yep. So, I think... I think that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, so I feel like the... I call, like, the, the Seinfeld myth of, like, the makeup sex being passionate. Um, that doesn't seem to be so true in my data. So, I think this, yeah, this idea that makeup sex is hotter sex, at least so far, doesn't seem to be the case. So, that's kind of one key myth. Um... I think another one is just this idea that um, I think, at least from my understanding, I think we have a lot of myths from the media that uh, sex should be like easy and effortless. And if you find a good partner, you should just always be having this great sex and, um, you know, simultaneous orgasms, really passionate and and all of this. Um, And I think that's just not the case in reality when we look at how most people's desire and sexual satisfaction is declining in relationships. And so... I think that getting back to um, some of the definitions I gave, some of my early work looked at people who believe in some of those myths. And those are those sex destiny people who kind of think like, yeah, yeah, I really like they really buy into this idea that you need to be having good sex and that your relationship is contingent on if you're having perfect sex or not. So this idea of like a perfect sex life, I'd say, is a myth that I think a lot of people have. And I think it's important not to have that myth, because if you believe that sex takes work like a more sexual growth idea, you're ultimately more more happy. Um, and this idea like that, I guess it's maybe a subcomponent of the myth. I think that there's also just a myth, um, amongst a lot of people that like couples are having a lot of sex, that they're always having good sex. Um, people are always like surprised when I tell them that the average couple has sex just once a week. And that's actually a good level for them that maximizes their happiness. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who are thinking, oh no, we have to be having sex like a couple times a week to keep it satisfying. But you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be extravagant, like more isn't always better. So yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I find that's, I, I always enjoy like 
so for me, I and Jess, this, this is how Jess and I met. Was yes, yes, I have. Sex Research Forum. Yeah. I always, I always enjoy going to these conferences because everybody gets has different reactions to these findings. So true. And whenever someone comes up with a finding like that, it's like, I believe it was was Amy Muse talking yeah, about this. Yeah, the sexual yeah. frequency stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so so Amy Muse uh, was Jessica's supervisor at the University of Toronto, and she had uh, said exactly that, that the couples are reporting the most happiness whenever they're having sex once a week. And just looking around the room, <laughs> even among sex yeah. researchers, you always get to see different perspectives on people like, oh, that's way too high. Yeah, or wait, people are like, low. oh, that's way too yeah. low. And like everybody's, and I'm looking around, I'm like, who's thinking it's high? Who's, who's thinking low? it's low? Like, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> and so you see all this variation. I think that's the that's the really fun part for me for the relationship yeah. research. And that's why I, I, I'm so interested. And I'm sure you are it's too. True. There's just so much variation in what, what people expect to be the norm. It's true. Well, and, and even, so, um, I'm glad you said that too, because that even was funny when I presented um, at a relationship thing, I presented the makeup sex stuff and um, someone made a good point. They're like, oh, I actually don't believe that makeup sex would be hotter. Like, have you ever actually checked if people do buy into this myth? And I was like, no, I never have. So in the future, hopefully I can actually mm -hmm. measure like if people hold that. So maybe it's not true. Maybe half the room is like, yeah, I think like, you know, I think makeup sex should be hotter, but maybe there's half the audience thinking like, no, they're not surprised by what I find, you know? So it is kind of, I love your, yeah, it's so true. It's, I love looking at people in the audience trying to gauge their reactions. And yeah, it's kind of, it's funny that there is variability. <laughs> It's it's awesome when it's super obvious. Someone like turns to their friend like, once a week. Yeah, I'm like dotting it down like what? Yeah. What? <laughs> I'm always guilty of being like very expressive during talks too. I'm like what? Like yeah. <laughs> but my birthday, I only have a birthday once a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> no, it's really it's really fun. That's why I, this is uh, genuinely like, I love I love research that kind of gets people talking mm -hmm, and gets people thinking mm -hmm. about and reflecting on their lives and how they see things. So it's always really cool. And I think your work is perfect for that. I think a lot of people take a lot from this. Thanks. I hope uh, so. Yeah. And there's a lot of myths and misconceptions that you just listed off that we had already talked about. Yeah, so it's really cool to, to address those. With some data. Uh, and, yeah. 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 Um, so kind of going back to the the idea of you know sex shouldn't be something that. A couple has to work at it; should just come naturally. Right. Where does right. where does that come from? Like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think so, we have an obvious answer in some ways, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I think the obvious answer. I don't know if this is what you were getting at. I think I like scapegoating Hollywood in the media yeah, is an easy one. Thinking, yeah. um, and I think, like you know, because it's it's rare. I mean, it, I think things are changing now, but most of the time when we see sex portrayed in the media it is really satisfying. You know, people are able to get aroused easily. They love it. Like it's just all happening so well. And there, you see less of like the, the struggles. Um, so I definitely think, and even just this idea of like finding your perfect match or finding your perfect fit, like even outside of sex um, is really something the media, you know, we always have that idea of like, Oh, you need to find the one or the soulmate. Um, so I think the media is one, but I think what's more interesting to me to start to think about now is like how it also could be something that's perpetuated through um, like our peers and our parents even maybe too. So I think because as a society, we, we aren't as good about talking about sex like we do other things. Um, I think no one's really knowing what, I guess it gets back to this idea of like people not knowing what their neighbors are doing and thinking everyone's having great sex, but it's sort of a similar idea, like, because, you know, it's like your parents probably would talk about, you know, you, I, I'd say growing up, most people might see their parents fight over dishes or something like that, but they're not going to see yeah. for the most part, their parents aren't probably going to talk about sexual struggles with them. Or, you know, even if your, your colleagues or your, or your peers, or even like some, some friends, like don't feel comfortable talking about that. So I think because we're talking about it less, I think it helps the media's message seem more true. Because if the only message you're getting is all these messages that sex is great, then and it's really easy, and um, you're not really getting all those other messages as much. Although I think there are some some promising changes. I think you know the more um, I think now there's a lot of good websites where you can get proper like research-based sex research that's that's saying you know but i think we're getting a lot better about being more realistic about our uh sex expectations as i call them sexual expectations <laughs> yeah awesome no it's it's so true and i think there's a uh, it kind of harkens back to our episode on sexual education and how it's just right. it's important that you're getting an, a, the appropriate amount of information accurate information yeah. uh, from different sources yeah. so if you're only getting it from one spot that's what you're going to take as as correct or what's the norm it's true. right so yeah. it's true yeah we yeah if you're and we consume it from pop culture and we're like that's what we're going to think is happening yeah. right everything's flawless yeah yeah exactly you exactly you don't, or you very seldomly if ever see a movie where the the two two stars are getting hot and heavy and it's like awkward and, and not working yeah and somebody's not yeah exactly it. Like, that's a very uncommon yeah trope, right 
Um, it's true. It's true. You more often see like the, you know, yeah, the simultaneous orgasms, the just the, yeah, yeah that it's so great. And, yeah. and I find the ones that like, I can think of a couple where it's maybe not like that, but then they're usually older couples, which is also not a fair trope too right. either, because it's just implying that older people have bad sex, but not young people when, you know, it's not an age thing. Yeah. And maybe this speaks to sort of other things, but you you spoke to it like a lot of these a lot of these situations where like oh the couple's not having sex is it's supposed to be funny it's a comedic sort of right right but it's never presented as sort of a serious thing like that's true yeah you know, yeah that's true they're not having sex <laughs> you know or it's, like it's, another mundane. it's often presented as sort yeah. of a bit of a joke and everybody sort of laughs it off and I think that's yeah that's part of the culture that we've got which is that yeah we're generally uncomfortable about talking about sex but you know there isn't sort of that that reality where it's like no this isn't actually a joke this is something that yeah this is actually something more serious and i'm trying to think like i yeah i can see like i'm trying to think of examples where they've done a good job and it is hard to think of ones off the top of my head and i mean i think there's a couple then i think there is also sort of like made uh you know people make jokes about couples trying to spice things up so i'm thinking of how although i did actually like these episodes um i don't know if you guys watch modern family but they had a whole thing where the Mm -hmm. couple tries role playing to like spice up their (laughs) sex life but like I mean, I think at the end of the day, too, like, to me, that's kind of funny, because what what I was sort of trying to allude to earlier is that it doesn't always need to be something crazy and out there um, Mm -hmm. to spice things up, you know, just like more smaller things can work, too. I mean, sure, do it, you know, do whatever you want. But um, it doesn't always have to be like this elaborate, comedic, like huge production just to try to get a married couple to have a better sex life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if, I mean, if anybody has any good examples, uh, make sure to send us a message on Twitter or uh, on Facebook and let us know like, if there were any good uh, yes. shows or movies that have addressed this. I'd love to have them for just, I mean, imagine you would yeah, too for, for teaching, teaching. Yes, anything like that. Exactly. Where, yeah. Yeah. Because I only have examples yeah, of so bad anybody ones. Has those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're chock full of yeah. bad, ones, bad examples, but we need good examples of, of sexual interactions yeah. and, and relationships. Yeah, so, that are like yeah. realistic. Yeah. And that's not to say that they can't be yeah. funny. Sometimes like you can have that kind yes, of experience and, and laugh about it. And that's okay. Like, yeah. oh yeah, the role playing that we had thought was going to be super hot was completely yeah, it absurd. Turns out to... <laughs> yeah. But we had a good time anyways. And that can be a good story. And that can be, mm-hmm. you know, and that mm-hmm. can be, I think, a really positive thing for a relationship. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, even arguably, like, even if the role playing lets, I think it doesn't pan out for them. I don't think they have, like, a good, satisfying sexual experience, but that could still help them out because they, like, tried something new and got outside of their comfort zone. So they probably felt more passion anyway. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a good way to see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Jessica, you've got a, a pretty cool fact. Um, I don't know if, do you remember what you said, what you've told us? Oh, yeah. I think I, <laughs> yes. I was like, I did. I added the fact today. So I think I remember what I said. So, um, yeah, I find it interesting. There was a study done, uh, one of those big Q research polls, like just of, yeah. you know, general couples. And they asked them to rate a bunch of different domains about how important they are for a successful marriage. So there was things like. Uh, the number one answer, so 93% of people rate fidelity as very important for a successful marriage. Um, but then there were things that I thought were more interesting, like, okay, agreeing on politics or sharing interests. Um, and then embedded in there was also how important is a sexual, a happy sexual relationship to a successful marriage? And it's actually 70% of people who say a happy sexual relation, a sexual relationship is important for a successful marriage. And that was the second most highest rated domain. So that's higher than people rate agreeing on children or sharing politics or sharing interests or household income, things like that. So wow. people are really rating it high and so I think that's really important to know because it kind of gets back to I think it supports some of the findings I'm showing like you know when people's desire declines it is impacting both members because like you know people people are aware like it's like the research shows sex is important for relationships and lay people know this right mm-hmm. like we all know it's it's super important so I'm always surprised that like it seems like we know it's important but yet we still have trouble talking about it so it's kind of interesting that there's a bit of a dichotomy there that like you know the majority of people are saying yeah sex is really important for marriage but I don't think we're always talking about it to have more realistic expectations about sex and marriage so you're saying that is fidelity the number one then? yeah fidelity was number one um and then and then marriage um I mean it's yeah and how it was worded is like they could um I think it was like a checklist so they just got to check off yeah how many of them they rated as very important. And then there was ones that they rated as like somewhat important and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, the very important, like fidelity was number one. And really fidelity, you could construe as part of top sex. Top two or yeah. sex. Yeah, top two or yeah. sex. I like so that. It, 
top two things that are most important yeah. for relationships seem to be sex, yeah. right? So maintaining a monogamous relationship is important for people. And then yeah. having a good monogamous yeah. sexual relationship it's important is important. For people. Yeah. It's very interesting that those are the top two. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially when you think about like agreeing on yes. children. Yeah. Because uh, I was going right? to say, like, <laughs> as, a, as a relationship researcher, like, I, I study sex and I'm always harping on how important it is. But, like, I would even rate some of the other ones as more important. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I think the data shows you do need to agree on, like, finances and how, like, anyways. So I think it's kind of funny that, yeah, everyone's just really prioritizing, at least in that study. Wow how important it is. And, and I think that's kind of true. I think it's something that people, I think it just holds so much weight, right? Like I think um, we, we associate our sex, the quality of our sex life with like the levels of intimacy in our relationship. And, and yeah, so I think it's, we're putting a lot of, I guess that's why I like studying this. I think we put a lot of importance on sex and I think it's just so hard. Um, there's even research like sex is one of the top reasons people seek therapy, even when they're newlywed couples. Um, therapists rate sexual issues as some of the most difficult to resolve. Like sex is tough and it's something that people think is important. So I think um, the more research we can do about how people can have better sex lives and long-term relationships, the better. Yeah. And I mean, one thing going forward to like most of the research uh, that I talked about today was all with like monogamous couples, but hopefully we can start looking at, you know, people who do more open marriages and consensual non-monogamy. That's kind of a cool future direction. So I think there's lots of, uh, lots left to do. So yeah. Well, I mean, re relationships Always. are so exceedingly complicated, and as we alluded to yes. earlier, um, there's so much variability within a single person. When you add that second person, it's not just adding yeah. the variability, it's almost multiplying that variability. Yeah. So there's so yes. much yeah. more that we have to be concerned about. Exactly. I think that's really neat. Exactly. Yeah. And there's some great work. Like I haven't looked at this in my own work, but there's a lot of great research. Um, Kristen Mark does some of this on desire discrepancies. So really getting at that, like the gap between the two people and how that's impacting things. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's like just when you add two people and add their sexual desires in and their relationship feelings, like there's so much going on there to unpack. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's less of a clear cut story, you know, yeah. a lot, a lot to mm -hmm. predict. Yeah. No kidding. Great. Well, uh, Drake, I think we should wrap it up there. Jess has been a more than willing companion for this journey. So <laughs> This was so much fun. <laughs> Good. Thank you guys so much for having yeah. me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Jessica, where can our guests, listeners, and fans get a hold of you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So you can reach me at twit on Twitter. I guess tweet me at, at Jess underscore A underscore Maxwell. So that's Jess underscore A underscore Maxwell. Or my website is JessMaxwell.com. And uh, it has a link to my email and stuff up there. Perfect. Thanks. Absolutely. As Perfect. always, we'll have all of that linked on our website. So if you're interested, you can go to brainbuzzpodcast.com. Uh, go to this episode. We'll have some info there. But as well, go to our guest's uh, bio page, and uh, everything about Jess will be there, and you'll be able to find all the contact info as needed. Uh, great. Drake, anything else? Uh, nope. Nothing. Uh, until next time, thank you again for tuning in to Brain Buzz. Uh, we're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And cheers. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. <laughs> yeah.